You are listening to Alumni Audio Lab, a bi-monthly podcast from the OEAD. This is Austria's Agency for Education and Internationalization. I am Doris Obrecht, and in this podcast, I talk with alumni of OEAD who have all studied or done research in Austria or abroad. We talk about their life, research, their background, and sometimes also current events and developments. This is episode 37. My guest today is Oliver Hauser. He is originally from Austria, but now lives in Great Britain, where he is an associate professor of economics at the University of Exeter and a future leaders fellow from the UK Research and Innovation. He also heads the initiative of the great acronym Big Ideas, Behavioral Insights, Gender Inclusivity, Diversity, Equality and Access. And I can say that I've never had a guest who is at home at so many disciplines, in which he's publishing as well. Economics, psychology and management, evolutionary biology, environmental sciences, and his game theory experiments on inequality are also very mathematical. In addition, he publishes in the practice and application-oriented area, for example, in the Harvard Business Review. Oliver has also won numerous prizes and awards in research and teaching, all of which I cannot list now. In 2009, he received an Erasmus scholarship and studied in Romania. And from 2007 to 2010, he was scholarship holder of the Mondi Austria Foundation, which was managed by the OEAD. Oliver, if someone reads your CV about your early studies, he might not immediately anticipate the broadness of your academic achievements. You have a bachelor's degree in physics from the University of Innsbruck and a PhD in biology from Harvard University. I'm very happy that you're here today and that you're taking the time for this interview. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. And thank you for the very kind introduction. And <laughs> lovely when you read it out like this. It doesn't sound like the normal <laughs> when I think about it, but thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Oliver, what leads someone like you from Innsbruck to Harvard and from physics and biology to economics? Yeah, thank, thanks for that question. It's, um, I often think about that one too, and I, I think I don't have an easy answer. Um, I have, I feel like a lot of good luck and fortune that has sort of ended up leading to where I am today. I did when I started in Innsbruck. So I'm, I'm originally from Innsbruck and um, I went to a natural sciences gymnasium, um, high, high, like high school equivalent, I guess. And um, I was always interested in maths and physics. And so it seemed very natural that I would go to university and study physics because that's the thing that I enjoyed doing. I felt like I was pretty good at it. And when I went to the University of Innsbruck, I was very fortunate, as you mentioned, to receive a scholarship. Um, The, the Mondi Scholarship. And that was really kind of, it was definitely life-changing in hindsight. But even then I realized how important it was for me to kind of get into the zone of, of studying and really dedicate myself to studying physics. And um, that's in particular important because in Austria, lots of people have jobs while they study, but I had the privilege of not having to do that. And so when I ended up, um, you know, doing fairly well, I would say in, in undergraduate, doors opened and, you know, I did research and I became involved in other opportunities. And one day I just decided to give it a try and apply to all of the universities that everybody talks about in the world, these top US universities. And yeah, as I said, I think good fortune that I ended up receiving a scholarship from Harvard and um, ended up pursuing a phys Actually, I started in, in physics um, as well at Harvard, thinking that's what I was going to do for my PhD. But within my first year, I realized that the kind of physics that I was used to in undergraduate is not quite the same as doing applied research, um, applied physics research that I was doing at Harvard, which was interesting, but I started to think about a career in this field. And there were things about it that I liked and some things that I couldn't see myself doing for the rest of my life. And so I looked around and one thing led to the next. I sat in a lecture, really enjoying a lecture at Harvard by a, a professor. He's actually Austrian as well, which um, his name is Martin Novak. And he talked about game theory and maths and statistical physics and how you can describe and study cooperation. And I was just blown away by it. And um, as you can tell, game theory is sort of the, the key concept here. I, I ended up getting my PhD in biology, which um, you know was a circumstance more by the fact that within game theory, there's something called evolutionary game theory. And um, that that's the concept that I used during my PhD. So that's the biology link, the evolution um, part. 
But overall, my game theory sort of hat on is what allowed me to then later on enter economics. So um, I was, yeah, uh, I ended up doing my PhD at Harvard and then a couple of years also uh, as a postdoc, uh, postdoctoral researcher um, at the Harvard Business School and at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And then I applied for professorships, assistant professorships in economics. And I was fortunate that Exeter thought that what I was doing, despite the fact that it's very broad, they thought it was interesting. So they gave me a job and, and that's where I've been since. You said it, you were not only a PhD candidate, but also a research associate, research fellow, lecturer at Harvard. What is the great myth behind Harvard, the elite university? And what is different from the Austrian universities? Um, well, I mean, that some things are obviously different. And, you know, one thing is that they are private institutions and, and the Austrian universities are public. And I actually, I emphasize this quite a lot because it makes a huge difference on, on the ground, so to speak, that Harvard and MIT and Stanford, because they're private institutions and they get a lot of donations from wealthy alumni, at the end of having a lot more, lot more resources. So I don't want to underplay the fact that what's hugely different at a place like Harvard is that if you have a good idea, there's also money to do it usually. <laughs> and so that helps. But I think there's more things to it. One of them is that, you know how people talk about the American dream and you think big. And I would say actually probably in some parts of the US, that's probably not quite so true, but where it is true is a place like Harvard. When you, when you enter, when you come in, there really isn't, limit right like they tell you this is your opportunity you have five to six seven years in your phd make the most of it anything you want to do this is your chance to really get get going and get started and i think it's represent i guess sort of it's it's visualized and illustrated pretty quite well in the fact that i started a phd in physics and i got got going and they let me do it right like and i I enjoyed doing what I did, but when I realized that maybe my interests and maybe things that I could contribute to research lied, were lying somewhere else, they enabled that. They, they didn't think twice about the fact that it meant changing maybe subject. It meant getting a new PhD advisor. And I was just very lucky to be supported throughout both by my professors and by the institution. And I don't know what it would be like at Austria, in an Austrian university. I, didn't, I never did a PhD here. Um, but I think that I was amazed by the fact that you would receive so much support to help you develop and, and contribute in the best way you can. Where do your academic fields meet in your mind? In other words, please explain us a little bit the intersection, so to speak. Yeah, of course. So I think at the beginning of all of this, it was at the math foundation, I think is when it met, um, just because that was my access at the time. So um, for those who are not familiar with game theory, I mentioned that word a lot, but it's very famous actually from from a movie called A Beautiful Mind, um, where they talk about John Nash and a, a game theorist and economist who won the Nobel Prize. And it sort of looks at how we can study human behavior, decision making between people using maths. And so game theory basically describes how two people, which are often called players, interact in one way or another and they influence each other. And that's called a, a game. And I had never come across this idea until I was at Harvard in this lecture. And so when I was like, wow, this is what you can do with maths. And, and it turns out physics, of course, has so many maths concepts. There's a lot of overlap there. That's how I sort of started getting into this. And when you start thinking about the world and, you know, interactions in daily life as a, as a game, so to speak, then all of a sudden you can see so many opportunities of where this applies. So in the simplest sense, and that's sort of what my PhD research was a lot about, was cooperation. A big conflict in our world every day is, you know, you can, sadly, you can be selfish and you can just do things that you want to do for your own benefit. And if everybody did this, the world would collapse tomorrow. What's amazing is that humans have the ability and the willingness to cooperate. And so we can use mathematical tools to You know, be precise about what that means when you pay a cost to help someone else. Under what conditions do we see cooperation arise? But there are other more applied settings where this can, can happen, right? A simple one might be in a charitable setting. A more maybe complex one might be in a, in a social interaction in a workplace. So when you are asked to help someone, um, you know, in your teamwork, maybe you're studying at university, you can just focus on your own homework and your own problem sets that you need to solve, or you can, you know, sit together in a group and dedicate some of your time to help others who need it. 
and they might help you in the future when you struggle. And so I think one of the things that fascinates me is when we look around the world, a lot of the problems that we see are often conflicts of cooperation, that we're not willing to give to a public good, something that benefits everybody, because sometimes we're afraid that we will be taken advantage of. And so a lot of the work that I do now in organizations is around these strategic decision-making processes. So one example might be in the workplace, we're looking at when people, for instance, behave unethically. They have opportunities to maybe do something where they cut the corner. How do we reduce those opportunities? How do we make people realize in that moment where they might be tempted to do that, not to act that way? Another setting might be that, you know, unconsciously or consciously, some people treat someone else differently on the basis of their gender or their race and ethnicity. And they might do so and, you know, sometimes not knowing and sometimes they do know and they reduce their opportunities, they make them feel bad, they make them excluded from an environment. And how do we step in and help those people realize what they're doing and what consequences their actions have on others? But also how do we make sure that especially if someone does it knowingly, that we don't allow those opportunities to arise. So that's that's sort of a strong, uh, like a very broad overview, but I'm, I'm happy to go into any of the details. Listening to you, it convinces someone that all of these disciplines are really combined into one research uh, focus. Do you see yourself as an interdisciplinary researcher, a transdisciplinary one? Yeah, quite, quite very much so. I think um, there's a lot of talk about this these days, being an interdisciplinary researcher and, and trying to foster this, I still try to figure out what exactly that means. And because to me, I, I've always followed interesting questions, right? So I've just mentioned a few of the settings where some of my work is, which is in workplaces and in organizations. There's also been since since beginning of my PhD already a really interest in trying to think about sustainability and environment. And you could argue, and you know, arguably that's very true, it's a very different field from organizations and so forth. And so I would never want to claim I'm the kind of person who understands the climate science behind it, right? Like the, the chemistry and so forth. But my contribution can be on something that's to do with strategic um, interactions with people. And so absolutely. So I think in a way, I still do the same thing, right? Like <laughs> I still use these kinds of tools and framework and the kind of thinking, but it's in a, such a different setting. Now we're thinking about why do generations today not invest in helping the future and you know from a strategic uh, game theory perspective it's quite obvious because you you won't benefit from in the future right if the world still is around in 150 years it's unlikely to matter to any of us alive today and that's a very short horizon think about a million years from now why would anybody care and so we need to start to tap into the kind of psychology and the kinds of thinking that people do around yeah, being generous and being willing to invest into the future. And so from, from my perspective, I, I would call that quite interdisciplinary uh, research. But on the other hand, it's still game theory to me. I think these boundaries, which are, I don't know how it is in UK or United States, but in Austria, there is still this discipline thinking a lot. And I think you don't have these boundaries in your mind anymore, but do you see it in the, in the systems where you're working in the research systems? Yeah, a really good point because I think it's um it's easy when I just look at my own research, then I find it en enjoyable and fortunate that I can do whatever I want. But it's not true that it's everywhere possible to do that. In fact, I would say, you know, I'm for instance at the University of Exeter, I think they are making a real strategic priority that it's about interdisciplinarity. In particular, the business school and the economics department that I'm in. Both, you know, the head of department, the dean and the vice chancellor, they're all very dedicated to making this possible. And the way to show that, in my opinion, is that you really hire people to do it and to give them the chance to work in that area. And I think a lot of times when institutions talk about it, they mean well, but maybe they haven't put in place the right infrastructure. And I think I definitely find myself in a situation and in, you know, the setting where it is possible. I think that's also underlined by some of the recent choices by, for instance, the funding bodies in, in the UK. For instance, about five years ago, approximately, the UK funding bodies, which used to be separate, so you had the social science funding body, the humanities, the natural sciences, environmental, they all acted quite independently. And five years ago, they were combined in what's now called UKRI, UK, UK Research and Innovation. And as one of the first things they did a couple of years later is to announce this big future leaders fellowship. And it was very broad in what it tried to achieve. It was also a very generous funding package, 
but they, they try to make sure that it's not within one of the funding bodies, but for anybody from any field. And, and again, I'm very lucky that I end up getting one of those, but it then enables you to do research across those boundaries because it, it was set up this way and it built the infrastructure and the resources to make it possible. Does this interdisciplinary depend largely on the discipline where a researcher is conducting research? I would hope not, um, but you know, I think it <laughs> depends on who you ask. I think in some areas it may seem a bit easier to do interdisciplinary research. I'm, I'm just thinking out loud, you know, for instance, in the natural sciences, the boundaries between physics and biology or geography or the environmental sciences, you can just see, or chemistry, how each of those components is interacting with each other. So possibly, yes, that there's a, a much more natural way to connect to someone in a different field. In the social sciences, there's definitely also opportunities, but it can, becomes a, a little bit more difficult maybe to connect to the natural sciences. I think I sometimes see it um, in the humanities. My, my wife is a lecturer in classics. I find there it may be even harder because in, in those fields in particular, traditionally research is done more on your own. And so I think it's it's not the same as, you know, a 40-person team in the natural sciences where everybody has a different background and contributes. So I think, yeah, disciplines differ a little bit in how naturally they, might, they may fit into that, the, the, the interdisciplinary sort of agenda. Uh, we're talking a lot of about economics at the moment. When it comes to economics and business corporations and big groups of companies probably, probably spring to mind, do you conduct your research from the corporate point of view or pertaining more to the people involved? Oh, interesting. So can you say that again, please? So the, the question is more like how the corporation as a whole thinks, or you mean like the, the employees within the company? Yes, yes. The, the employers or the people and the people's role as a like homos economicus Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or from the corporate point of view? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I hadn't thought about it like this, to be honest. But <laughs> I think, in part, it's it's obviously that they interact a lot with each other. So it's not just one or the other. But I think often when I come into an organization, it's um, that we are working with a big organization that, that faces a problem. Let's say, for instance, right now, a lot of my work has to do with how we can ensure that people from any background, you know, gender, race, um, nationality, can succeed in organizations. Now, you could argue that's an individual problem, right? Each individual employee who comes from that background, they will want to make sure they can benefit and, and, and succeed in this organization. But a lot of the work that I then end up doing is with the organization, trying to design and change aspects of the organization to make sure that those individuals can succeed. So an example might be, we're obviously working with managers at different levels and we talk to them about where are the challenges we then use a lot of data to sort of pinpoint where in the in the organization hierarchy we find problems it could be promotions it could be salaries it could be um, hiring and so at that point then we start to make tweaks to the organizational design and we run experiments so big randomized control trials which are now very famous of course with the whole covid trials people know what a clinical trial is and what a randomized control trial is so we try to do the same in organizations to bring this gold standard of experimentation from the sciences into organizations. So I guess my research often then becomes about organizations, but I'm hoping that by the end, the individuals will benefit from it. How would you interpret the current world economic situation or the modern business world from the point of view of these, of these people or in relation to these individuals? I think in many ways, it's, it's an exciting time to be doing this research, but also to just see what's happening in the world, right? Like there's a lot of a lot of momentum in trying to make the world a better place and a lot of conversations going on on how to do that. I think people differ on their opinion of how to do it. And so I think that's that's obviously kind of what, what life is always about. Everybody has a different idea of how to do it. I, I wouldn't claim that I know the best way. I think that one, what's exciting right now is, especially if you do this kind of research, is that when you talk to a big organization, they genuinely want their employees to do better, right, and, and thrive. An organization would be relatively short-sighted if they didn't want their employees to thrive because if an employee does well, the organization does well. And I think in that sense, that's where organizations play a really important role. From an individual perspective, I think a lot of um, employees we talk to and managers, they also want change to happen. But of course, in your everyday life, you probably don't have the opportunity to just make one big change. Most of us don't have that power. And so 
what's most insightful for me is talking to these people and understanding where they're coming from, what their viewpoints are, because it's quite important before we make any changes to the organization, you have to really think quite carefully about what are the downstream consequences. And so I think in many ways, one of the things that this time has shown us right now, that's the questions and debates that are going on in societies that people are willing to speak up and, and bring those viewpoints forward. And I think that's an important first step. Does that influence the current major global trends in economics research? Absolutely. I think, I mean, it's no surprise, I think, that in economics in the last 10 years, say, questions around gender and diversity have become much more important. I mean, it does track quite well with societal trends. Equally, I think, for the last 20 years already and more probably, we have seen in economics an absolute increase and rise in understanding and studying climate both from the climate science perspective, environment and, and chemistry, but definitely also from an economic perspective. What kind of economic systems can we have and what incentives to make difference and make sure that our climate change problems don't become worse? So I think absolutely. And I would even argue that it's the interplay between the two, right? The fact that 50 years ago, most economists probably wouldn't have thought about their role in environmental sciences or their role in even organizations very often, right? It was, a, it was a different world. It were different problems. They asked different questions. And now they're feeding back into the climate debate. They're feeding back into the questions of gender and diversity. And so I think that is quite exciting that it goes from one end to the other and back and so influences each other. One of your, I think, main focus is also inequality. Mm -hmm. I have one question. I, I hope you understand what I mean. Yeah. Who, who defines inequality? Is it in its comparisons, which is inherent, an absolute factor? Is there like a definition we can use for inequality in the business world, for example? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's actually quite a fundamental question. So I've just actually, I'm writing a paper right now where we talk about um, understanding how social scientists study inequality in the real world. Um, many people may have heard about the Gini index. It's a very common measure of inequality. But obviously that number is usually one number and it says, says a lot about inequality, but it probably doesn't tell the whole story because like you say, um, inequality has to be quite clearly defined. One way to define it is just differences between people and in particular differences in the form of a Gini index. In that case, differences would often refer to income or wealth. And so you're right. It's quite inherent that people are different from each other. And it's also at least in a, in a capitalist world that we live in, it's very normal. And, and what we want to see are differences in incomes, right? Often the question becomes, how big should the differences be? And that's, again, that's sort of, it's a political question, but it can also be studied from a, from a social science perspective. So some of my research has looked into how big those differences are in reality and how people think how big those differences are. And it turns out, Both are important factors. So if the ultra-rich become even richer, they do have a lot of control of the world's resources. And, you know, that's one factor to consider in how we want to redistribute our money, how much power should individual people have. But it's almost more important what people think that distribution looks like. In, in my own work and previous people's work, what we have found is that people often underestimate the extent to which money is unequally distributed. And so it can shape their thinking, right? If they don't realize how much money sits at the top and how much less is at the bottom. That's how, how you're going to think about politics and how you think about what's fair in the world and how much money we should give to poor people. And so these kinds of questions are really inherently difficult to answer. But I think that's an important thing because it influences every election in every country and then how people think about those questions. I've also found one very interesting aspect in one of your current papers from you and your colleagues, that you found out that inequality is more likely to be seen when it, it's expected. Is it inequality or the perception of inequality that is inherent in your research? Yeah, I think that um, a lot of what I do is sort of the perception of inequality. And um, for the reason I just mentioned that I think very often the behaviors, the decisions we make are on the basis of what we see. That means You can see it many different ways. One way to see the world is literally when you walk around, what do you observe? And it turns out that those kinds of perceptions really matter. Another way is you read the news. It depends on what channel you watch, right? And, and what newspapers you read. It can also be in social media. And so those perceptions, all of the channels that you have that influence your perception, your, your mind and your perceptions of inequality will then shape your decisions. So a lot of my work has been around that. I think whenever possible, we try to look at actual inequality as well, because 
you need to know whether people are right or wrong, right? If you just know what people think, if they're accurate, then, then their decisions reflect exactly what you would expect based on reality. But part of the problem is that people are often inaccurate in their perceptions and, and they don't realize it, right? It's not that anybody goes out and wants to be misinformed. It's the opposite. People want to get information. They want to know what's going on. But our minds are at the end of the day, you know, human beings are not robots and not computers. They can only process so much information. And especially when they get uh, selective information, like on social media, when you read what your friends write, that's a, that's a huge filter already. Or when you read a news article that's been shared on Facebook, then you're only getting a slice of the information usually and not the whole amount. As I already mentioned, as you also already mentioned, uh, you conducted research in Austria, the USA and the UK. If you address the topic of inequality and gender, where are the similarities and differences in these three three countries? Mm, yeah, it's really interesting because I think they are um, qu quite different in different stages. So I think, and also how countries think about whether there are problems in the first place. So if we look at economic inequality, uh, the US is much more accepting of high levels of, of inequality, much more accepting of the rich having a lot more money than you would find in the UK and much more than in Austria. The citizens of USA or the politics or the government? Uh, yeah, but both, I think. I, th I think in the US, so both has been studied. Certainly the politicians are um, making a bigger, sort of they, they say we want there to be inequality because the American dream in, in essence is that you can become well off, that you become rich, that you have a big house, that you... It, it comes down to a lot of wealth, actually. And so in American politics, that's a lot of rhetoric that's used. And the people believe it as well. And there's quite some interesting research in economics that has found quite stark differences in how much inequality is accepted in US versus in Scandinavia and how that is reflective in the policies that they have and the politicians they vote for. In the UK, I think it's sort of halfway between the US and continental Europe. So in the UK, inequality is also a bit more accepted, perhaps, but they are much more European in their thinking than American, that they want government to have a big role in making sure people have the same chances and this, even a bit more money, more equal money. Um, and I think Austria is much more on that side as well. I think European countries would like to make sure that differences are reduced at least, maybe minimized even, and that everybody's given the same chance. Where I think it's quite different is in gender and um, gender equality. Um, I find The debate in, in the US and the UK is actually probably a step further already. And you can see it in some elements that when I talk to my Austrian friends and colleagues, um, it's, it's quite puzzling to me because I've lived now over 10 years in these other countries. For instance, childcare in the UK and the US is very widespread. And one reason you have childcare is because when your ch children are young, they're not yet in kindergarten or in school, but parents want to go back to work or they need to go back. In the US, unfortunately, they need to. There, there's not much maternity <laughs> leave, so they have to go back. But even in the UK, you know, my wife and I, we both work full time and we have a daughter who's in, in childcare from very early on already, but it's very normal here. Whereas what I find fascinating is that in, in Austria, the debate isn't there yet. It's a very different debate. People are talking about childcare, but only when a child is one and a half or two or three years old. At that point, A woman has spent quite a lot of time outside the workplace. And, and we know from lots of research that affects her future earnings, her career progression. And so I find that quite fascinating that in, in many ways, people where they live don't even realize just how embedded they are in the social system. So when I bring this up to friends and family, they're surprised. They're like, wow, you send your child uh, into nursery when they're less than a year old. That seems so different. Um, from what we would ever do to our own child. So, and, and I have to say, actually, I'm quite glad we do because our daughter lost nursery. So I don't know how, how you can be as entertaining at home. Or I can't <laughs> <laughs> We're talking a lot about game theory and your research is a lot about uh, game theory. Would you recommend a more playful approach to the world? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, will probably be a good thing. Obviously, I'm biased in, in what I've studied and what I still study and research. But... I think game theory has, I mean, the word itself is really fun. I think, I don't know who came up with it, but I think it's, <laughs> it wouldn't, most people who would see what we do on a daily basis would probably not call that playful, but I think it is quite playful and nice. <laughs> I also think that if many people saw it through that lens, it would be quite an interesting way for them to think about social problems. So I definitely think that there's something to be gained from doing it. And in particular, if people in Austria were to, you know, if they hear this conversation and they're thinking about this, I was surprised that 
this is not something that's typically covered, I think, in Austrian schools. It tends to be a, a subject that's much later in in um, university even. And then at university, some people study BWL, like basically business side of things. And some people study VWL, which is more economics. And I think had I known game theory existed, I wonder if I had studied something very different at university. And it definitely would have been a lot of fun to do game theory <laughs> from the start because I enjoy it now. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about teaching. You're teaching also already for, for years According to your CV, your research interests do not completely match your teaching interests. You enjoy, for example, cooperation as one of your research interests, but this does not appear in relation to your teaching. Game theory as well. Why? Oh, game theory is not in there? No, it's not in the teaching interests. Maybe it's, well, a, maybe it's, it's a mistake. Just a <laughs> that is probably a mistake. But there's usually only one line that you can fill out on that. So that's ah, okay. <laughs> but, but cooperation, the reason it's not in there is because I, would say, I was about to say it falls under the game theory teaching for mm -hmm. me. So, yeah, well, apologies. It definitely should have been in there. <laughs> but I think, uh, I think they're a little bit different just because I think that if I were to have the research and teaching sort of, you know, interest, if they it look exactly the same, for some people, they wouldn't quite know how it matters in the world. And so, for instance, even if I were to talk about cooperation, in the real world, I think I often talk much more about teamwork, about negotiations, for instance. And so that's a bit more hands-on for people. They understand now why it matters. If I tell someone the kinds of tools of game theory can help you understand how you get a better salary next time you negotiate, people become really interested in what I study, <laughs> but not the other way around. If I tell them about, you know, the math behind it, they somehow switch off. <laughs> so it's more the hands-on approach, which yeah. they can use. What does research mean to you on the one hand and teaching on the other? Hmm. Yeah, so I think um, I enjoy both, but I definitely think and have been reflecting on this for quite a while because in universities right now, there's obviously a big debate, always has been, to be honest, how much research should people do, how much teaching. And I've been so fortunate that over the last 10 years, I've had a lot of you know scholarships and, and fellowships to allow me to do a lot of research. And then I've always opted into doing some teaching on the side. So I think it's really important that we teach people who do research, faculty, professors, we have the opportunity to go really deep into a subject, really immerse ourselves and learn something and push the boundaries. And I think that's an amazing opportunity. And I hope that we're, by doing that, we really contribute to the society. But I also think that it's an opportunity for us to share that knowledge with the world. And teaching is one way to do that. I like teaching, especially when I teach undergraduates or MBA students. When I come into a classroom and I feel like the people wouldn't necessarily think about game theory, right? Trying to open their eyes to a world they may not have seen before. And when they leave, I hope that they're leaving with a new toolkit, with a new understanding of the world and maybe inspired to, to learn something new, right? Like I think at university, that's sort of one big difference, I think, to school. At school, you, you are learning a lot of content and students, when they come to university, are sometimes struggling with Why are we not telling them the information in the same way that's, that we did it, at, that they learned it at school? And I always tell my students that they're here to learn how to learn. So what we teach them are tools to think about the world and become critical thinkers and then be able to learn anything. You know, if you study something at university, it enables you to then go out and learn something different. And that's exactly what the real world is like. In the real world, you're not being taught content uh, in a job in I don't know, marketing or HR. Instead, you are asked to deal with challenges that come up. And as a university, I think what we can do as researchers is the same tools that we use in our research, the same critical thinking. That's what I'm hoping to equip our students when I teach. Have you seen differences in this learning to learn in the UK or USA or Austria? Mm, good question. I don't know if there are sort of cultural differences. I find that sort of students have different approaches to it. And I think it, it depends a little bit on sort of, you know, it, it depends on so many factors. But just as an example, when I studied um, at university, when I just started, I so in my family, nobody previously had been to university. So it wasn't, you know, there was not sort of a typical route to go to university and then study there. But I saw it as an amazing opportunity because nobody had ever done this. And so I wanted to make sure that I would succeed and do well and do well for, you know, like, learning from me, but also it's an achievement, not just for yourself, but for people around you as well, I think. And so when you then go into this learning mindset, 
I sort of absorbed every knowledge I could because I felt like it was sort of the one time I could really do that. I think when people come to university and they think, well, it's three years or five years or seven years, I'll, I'll just first, I'll get to know everybody and their party a bit. And then later I get into it. I think they're missing out on really valuable opportunities. And I think that mindset is shaped very early on. I don't know who exactly can shape that uh, mindset. I think sometimes it's friends or it's family. And we as professors have a role to play as well. And so I think that all of that coming together, I'm, I haven't seen so much intercultural differences perhaps, but more differences in how people think they should use their time at university. And I encourage everybody to make the most of it out of the opportunity because it's surprising how quickly it goes past you. You know, Three years is a very short time, actually, at the end of the day for a bachelor's degree. Even when you do a PhD is five or six years. That's really fast now as well. In hindsight, <laughs> it goes really quickly. I think if you enjoy it, then it goes really quickly. If not, <laughs> then it's getting right. difficult. <laughs> I think that, that one thing that... Um, I underappreciated at the beginning is sort of the value of work itself. So I, you know, I've always worked hard, but I think when you get into something and you really sort of absorb it, then the hard work pays off and you can see the payoff very quickly. I mean, at the university very quickly because you have exams and stuff like that. But later too, like in my PhD, payoffs in research do take a while. But when it, when you see that you're creating to new knowledge, that's just amazing, I think. And so I really enjoyed that feeling of working hard and then ending up seeing you know an outcome that i really valued and so i hope that when people you know i know it's never easy to say work hard but if they do then i think they will benefit from this very quickly and it sort of becomes self-reinforcing there is one position in your cv which stands out in particular for me you're an affiliate at the global institute for women's leadership at the australian national university How does an Austrian end up as an affiliate at an Australian university? <laughs> uh, again, good. Uh, yeah. well, well spotted, by the way. This is fairly <laughs> recent, actually, as of a few months ago. But, uh, you know, good set of fortune, fortune events. Uh, basically, when I, um, because I'm working on this um, big question of inequality, including gender inequality, this center that I lead or the initiative is, is big ideas that you mentioned before. And when you set up something like an initiative, You, you have students and you have postdocs. These are the people on the research side. I have organizations who help me do that research in the real world. But then I also benefit a lot from more established professors who, you know, I'm able to draw advice from, meet with, get sort of directions and steering where, where should this go. And so one of my advisors one of, on the advisory board, one of my mentors is Michelle Ryan. She is a professor of psychology at the University of Exeter until um, the end of the year when she will take up a new position. Uh, she's Australian, so she will move back to Australia and she's taking up a new position starting the, uh, as a director of this new Institute for Women's Leadership. And when she moved, she you know, asked me if I wanted to be sort of part of that. Even though I'm not in Australia, the international community, and especially in research, you don't have to be physically somewhere to be able to contribute and, and become part of that community and shape ideas. And so just as she is helping me shaping my initiative and institute, I now have a chance to be part of the Australian, much bigger. I mean, that, that institute is going to be very, very big, I'm sure. So I'm very excited about that. What interests you about women's leadership? Well, I think um, it should interest all of us because I think in particular, you know, it's, it's very easy. I've, I've often found that as well when I talk to people um, about the work that I do. And again, inequality is a big topic and it can include everything from economic inequality to gender inequality, to race and ethnicity. What I find interesting about this is that I think it comes down to principles of fairness. And ultimately, we should all be interested in, in fairness because that's sort of the foundation of a good, well-functioning society. If it's not possible that somebody can succeed because of the person who they are, then I think there's something broken in, in our systems. And so I think as an economist, we have a chance to, to fix some of those systems. And so, you know, women's leadership is an example of that. We do still find that women are just much less represented at the top levels of organizations. And the question is, why is that? One answer that for a long time, you know, this is now many decades ago, people thought was right is that women just weren't good at leadership or women didn't want to be in leadership. And we've learned a lot since then that that's absolutely not true. Like, you know, women leaders have been just as successful as male leaders. And at least from what I can tell, many of them are just as interested in it. Now, If they're not in the top levels yet, it means that probably something is wrong with the playing field in organizations, that they're not quite level yet, that they don't get the same opportunities. 
that's not to say that not everybody wants to be in that position. I often get that question. What if someone doesn't want to be a leader? And that's true for men and women equally, right? If you don't want to be a leader, you don't have to be. But I think the opportunity should be there for everybody. And so I think the way I think about women's leadership is as an example of how to make a system fairer. Now, ultimately, I hope that many people will benefit from this, in particular, women who would like to be in that position and don't have the chance. You could also even think about it much more broadly that, you know, we all know women in our lives who probably some of them would like to have that chance. And so I think you don't have to be affected. You don't have to be affected group to care about it. That's why I said I think it should interest all of us equally. What role do men or should men play in this whole gender bias issue? Yeah, I think um, in part, I think the, the answer I gave probably reflects that. And I think um, it's it's important that it's a joint venture. If it is only always the affected group, then ultimately, I think a venture like this is just going to have a much harder time succeeding. I think when it comes to gender, to be honest, I think that, you know, men and women are about 50-50 in society anyway, but then you become sort of, you might end up on opposite poles of the debate. And I think that's not going to help anybody. In fact, ultimately, nobody, no man, man out there would like it to be disfavoring them. But if they say that, if a man says, I don't want the system to be not in favor of me, then I think you should also acknowledge that if a system is against women, not in favor of women, that it's also a problem. So that's why I think that men have a, a role to play because ultimately, if you want to achieve change, you need a big number of people. And, and I think a big majority of people who are willing to really push this forward. And I think men play a really vital, important role in that. And I also think that in part, it's a, it is a conversation that needs to be opened up. Because I think it's very easy for, for people and men maybe in particular to say, it doesn't interest me it's, or it's not, it's not my concern. And so I think stepping forward and, and becoming part of this discussion and conversation is quite an important element of that. You also dealt with inequality during the pandemic with obvious but also less obvious deficiencies coming to light. Which inequalities have emerged for the first time or been boosted of the pandemic? Yeah, interesting question about the first time. So I don't, I'll have a think about that for a moment because nothing comes to mind immediately, but definitely inequalities that may have been sort of heightened during the pandemic, um, include, include, for instance, gender inequalities that I, I think when, when the pandemic started and all of a sudden lots of jobs had to change, they had to change either because some jobs had to be furloughed in, in UK, it's called furloughed. I think it was Kurzarbeit, I think in, in Austria sort of changing the, the way some jobs were done, how many hours a week or how, how intensively, or even for some time there wasn't much work and then it would pick up again. So I think when that happened and when people started to work from home and children couldn't go to school, it becomes a really difficult question. How do you deal with a situation where both parents potentially are working full time, but all of a sudden you have, you know, one, two or three children running through the house? And unfortunately, what the data and the survey um, surveys that have been conducted shows is that when that happened, a lot of women took the toll. So they were, maybe they were asked to do it by their husbands or partners, or maybe they just thought, I should be doing this. This is my role. Either way, um, it ended up that they were much more likely to then take a bit of a longer pause from work or even drop out more completely. And I think that there's a potential that this is not going to go away very quickly. It could be that a lot of the benefits we have made and the strides forward over the last few decades could be reversed a little bit at least, and hopefully not too much, by a pandemic that's sort of been a big shock to the system. You know, that's one element. And it's one, one thing we think about a lot when we work with organizations. They ask us how to, how to deal with that. There is, of course, also always an opportunity, right? Like, I, I think it's always important to think about big shocks like that can also change the default. We can start thinking about it differently. And I think some people and some couples will have done that particularly well. For instance, when everybody started to work at home, it also meant that if someone had an office job and say men who more traditionally have these kinds of jobs where they go in in the morning, come back in the evening, they could now spend a bit more time at home with families. So there's also a chance to reframe that conversation and for men to become more involved in, in say, childcare or housework in general. And so I think, yes, it, It looks like, at least, unfortunately, that inequalities may have been heightened, like gender inequalities, but it probably will have had different effects on different people. So I'm hoping that some will have made changes for the better and reduce any inequalities were there. Now to your second question, what new inequalities came about? One thing that comes to mind, having you know just thought about it a bit, is 
that we are just at the beginning of observing a new one potentially coming about, which is the difference between people working in offices and people working from home or hybrid. It's always been the case in the last 10 years that some jobs were more flexible than others and you could do some of them more flexibly from home, but there was a focus on the office. And so 90% of the workforce usually was in the office when they were expected to be. And I think that's changed. And I think it, again, could be an opportunity because some jobs you don't have to be in the office, actually. So we should use the opportunity and the flexibility. It might make your life happier, or you might be able to deal with um, demands at home much more easily. But of course, an inequality could arise if the people who in the future get promoted are the people who show up at the office. And then you can start seeing that that would be a new kind of inequality that comes about. And I don't know which way it's going to go. I'm hoping that's not going to be the case, but I hope that organizations are thinking actively now to avoid those kind of biases to creep in and to avoid any problems down the road. We're coming to the end. I have just a few more questions. You have an interesting reference to an email charter on your website and in your email signature. What's it all about? Yeah, so this is, um, I came across it many years ago. So for those who haven't um, seen this, um, you probably haven't, if you have never read my emails, you wouldn't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> But at the end of my email, before my signature, that's at the bottom of every email, it says, email too brief, question mark. I'm adopting the email charter to help reduce email clutter. Now, I came across this many years ago and I really liked it. This is um, the founder of TED, TED Talks. So a very famous um, person in its own right. He, in early 2000, I think already, so a long time ago, really, has predicted and already said, our inboxes are too full. We all receive way too many emails. So he said, I think that we need to tackle this problem from the beginning. Now, I really liked his, his approach to it. it. It goes to show again how game theory is everywhere. He said, <laughs> every time, every time you send an email, you are putting a burden on someone else to respond. Now, if I think about writing an email, I write an email and that says, you know, hey, do you have time or what are you working on right now? Then someone else has to write, ah, well, I'm doing this right now. I'm working on that. And it's a long response. So what takes me 10 seconds to write or five seconds might take two or three minutes to respond to. And so is it really worth writing an email for that? Well, probably you could actually wait until lunch and talk to the person. <laughs> or maybe um, you just ask yourself, why am I sending this email in the first place? And I think that's true for any of our communications. We've just become very immune to realizing what our actions do to others. And that's true for social media, but also for just our email etiquette. And so the email charter is trying to promote some good etiquette, some rules that we could all you know, play by. And so for instance, writing shorter emails isn't necessarily a bad thing. It can signal very quickly, you know, here are the things that you need to know, but also much more generally asking yourself what the value of an email is. So some things don't need an email, so maybe don't send an email. Other things, I think you can think about differently when you send an email, structure them well. If everybody's inbox is like mine, then there's way too many in my inbox. <laughs> and if I simply knew from a really good subject line what it is about, and if in the email there's a clear structure of like, here's what it's about, here's where I need your input, goodbye, <laughs> then I think people would be able to respond much more efficiently as well. So that it's not my idea, but I'm, I'm trying to you know, spread it and see if other people might also think it's a good idea to adopt. But as your inbox is still full or too full, do, do, do you see some kind of impact? or some? Most of the impact I think I've seen is that people ask me about it. And, yeah. I think <laughs> and, and then some people adopt it. I've actually seen it even within our university, which is really nice. I've seen some of the more senior professors and leadership have that now in, in the bottom of their email. And I don't know if it has anything to do with me. Probably not, but that's okay. As long as they're adopting it, I think it's a good sign that the message is spreading. So hopefully, over time, more people will use it and we will all benefit from it. You shared with me in advance that you and your wife are expecting your second child shortly. Yeah. How has your view of the world has changed since you became a father, as a researcher, but also as a private person? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I think uh, some of the things... Uh, so my our first child was born about... 20 months ago now so just under two our second one will be probably anytime this week or next <laughs> week so uh, you know and our first child was a, was a girl and our second one is going to be a boy so we'll have one of each i think for some people becoming especially a father like there's research on this so i'm not just saying this and guessing there's research that shows fathers who have a daughter all of a sudden become aware of the things that i said before they think about oh my god my daughter might want to be become 
a pilot or an astronaut or maybe a leader in an organization. And they start to think about gender issues quite differently. They do become more active, actually. And that's even true for CEOs. They start to treat their female staff better. So there's really research to show that it can change your life dramatically in that way. That's not happened so much on my research side because I was already working on this beforehand. But in a private, uh, in our private life, becoming a parent has been wonderful. I think it's been eye-opening exactly for the reasons that I don't study. You know, <laughs> I don't study children and I don't study um, parenthood very much. But I do think it's given a, a whole new perspective on life. I've particularly enjoyed, actually, weirdly, that when our daughter was born, about a month later, we were affected by lockdown. And our first child definitely was affected by many lockdowns, I guess, and the whole pandemic. But it just meant we had a lot of time to spend together. So I think it's been a very positive experience. And in many ways, I think one of the things that I hope we will do for the second one is to make sure to spend so much time with them and dedicate it um, together. It also meant that we would have done it anyway, but it was much easier to very clearly share childcare responsibilities between the two of us because we were working all the time from home. So that's really nice. And I think ultimately, you know, it's so hard to know before you have a child about what it's going to be like a parent, as to be a parent. But it's been just wonderful to have this whole new dimension in our lives. So I'm looking forward to seeing our second one and how that's going to change it again. And what is your greatest hope for your offspring and their offsprings? Oh, that they lead a very happy and healthy life, to be honest, whatever they want to do. What are your plans for the future when it's coming to research? With research, well, I think actually in many ways I have, um, you know, another few years on this grant. So I think one way you can think about research is just sort of in, in terms of big grant sort of like time periods. In my case, it's four to seven years. So I still have more to do on that. So it's not going to change very much. What I think I want to do a bit more, maybe just because given where my research has lied sort of in the last five years, has been with organizations and within organizational change. But it has uh, my research on environmental change has sort of taken a bit of a backseat. Um, so I want to make sure I continue that as actively as before, because I think it's, you know, everybody talks about it absolutely rightly, that climate change is such a big issue. So I want to make sure that both of those topics become, you know, continue to become very important in what I do. So not a big change really ahead, to be honest, but just making sure that I get the time to do research that I love. Oliver, thank you very much for this interview and for being my guest and for the insights into your expansive research areas. I wish you and your family all the best for the future. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to come. It was a real pleasure talking to you and I really appreciate all the lovely and, and thought-provoking questions. Very much appreciated. Thank you. That was episode 37 of the Alumni Audio Lab, the podcast of the UAD. My guest was Dr. Oliver Hauser, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Exeter. Thank you for listening. My name is Doris Obrecht and all former episodes can be found at our website www.oead.at slash alumni minus audio lab. Alumni Audio Lab. <laughs>